Join me, Jacqueline Coley, on a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen, presented by Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that shape them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, the podcast where we take a movie, look at that tomato meter score, and say, ah, maybe that's a little too high, that's way too low, or it's just right. My name is Mark Ellis. My co-host, as always, Jacqueline Coley, is on a much-deserved vacation. Again, she's kind of in between that, like, covering awards season and then going to film festival season, so she gets just a little crevice being... A, a coverer of movies, the scope and breadth of which Jacqueline Coley achieves is kind of like being a college football coach. There may be an offseason in theory. There never is. As soon as you you win in the playoff, you got to go right back to recruiting for the next season. So that's what Jacqueline's taking care of me. Meanwhile, setting up some stand updates for the fall, including Atlanta, La Jolla, uh, New Orleans possibly is going to be on the docket. So New York is obviously always there. Let me know what other cities you want to come have me come to. But right now, today, it's all about one of the more, I'd say, divisive movies of the last decade. Some people love it. Some people hate what they did to their beloved band. And some folks are just meh about Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen biopic from 2018 that is currently 60% on the tomato meter, which means it's fresh. And that's the lowest possible number. It could be and still be fresh. So it is right there on the Mendoza line. The audience score is much improved, 85% for that one. So I have two very special guests that we're going to be debating back and forth whether we think Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter, got it right with Bohemian Rhapsody. This film was recommended to us by a cacophony of fans, as you will. Rafael Terraza, Sean Cahey, and C.K. Anderson. Thank you so much. Rafael had some great thoughts about Queen, the band. And so I want to read some of those here before we get going. Queen was known to be bold, fearless, and innovative. I will die on the sword that had this movie been rated R, the movie could have matched the band's ambition by giving us an authentic look into the members' lives, especially Freddy's. Think about it this way. How can a movie about a guy who had no filter and used to swear like a sailor be rated PG-13? a great point, Raphael. So we're going to talk about maybe whether the movie should have been R-rated. Maybe they should have pushed the envelope a little farther, but we're not there yet. Where we are is introducing my incredible guests today. We got two of them because Lord knows I can't steer this ship by myself. First up is a wonderful correspondent for everything from Rotten Tomatoes to Fandango. You see her on morning TV all the time, Oscar's red carpet, and uh, amateur rattlesnake wrangler, as I just found out. (laughs) is Nikki Novak. Nikki, it is such a pleasure to see you and join you once again. 
And I am here. I am here. Like you said, I'm a part-time rattlesnake wrangler, not by choice. Just I live in an area where there are a lot of rattlesnakes. We were talking about that before we started rolling, but that's a whole other episode. How are you? <laughs> you survived. And and I am terrified of snakes. If you think Indiana Jones doesn't like his snakes, just come on over to uh, old Mark Ellis's place. Terrified of them, <laughs> love them to death, fascinated by them, but cannot deal with them. Unfortunately, today is not Anaconda. It is Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody. So while we have myself and Nikki here, I'm also going to introduce our other very special guest who you know from the hit YouTube series, Pay or Wait, a critic across the board, certified with all of the things that you need to be to be one of the top critics in the world. And that is Sharonda Williams. Hello, Sharonda. It is so good. You and I have been live on stage together. We've done this show before. What's new with you? You know, I'm just surviving. Actually, I started my fitness journey. I am one of those people who get excited to work out. I have become my worst nightmare and I'm kind of here for it. But you said started your fitness journey. So do you think you'll still be excited to work out in, say, a couple months? I don't know. My body has been breaking down each day. I've, I've gotten aches and pains in my knees. So let's hope that we can stay on the right path forward. OK, let's just hope that this sticks. Hey, I'm I'm proud of you. I'm I'm proud of both of y'all for taking the time out of you. I know y'all have busy lives and schedules and a lot of success going on in your individual career. So thanks for gracing our show and myself with your presence. So let's go ahead and talk about this right now. Just a quick synopsis about Bohemian Rhapsody. It is based on the story of the band Queen, particularly the lead singer Freddie Mercury, but we also get into some Brian May, some Roger Taylor, and some other founding members of the band, but also their management behind the scenes, what's going on, their touring years, everything leading up from the formation of the group to their heroic performance at 1985's Live Aid. And when we look at the movie and the tomato meter, I'll start with you, Sharonda, 60% is what Rotten Tomatoes has to say about the film. Do you think that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong about that score for Bohemian Rhapsody? I think that Rotten Tomatoes is not only wrong, but highly disrespectful. I just don't understand why there is so much hate against this movie does anyone have hearts out there what is happening i mean sometimes the movie needs a friend and it seems like to quote freddie himself you might be the best friend of this movie let's, <laughs> let's see if nikki feels the same way nikki is rotten tomatoes wrong with that 60 percent rotten tomatoes is wrong but not in the sense that you're thinking because i think this is the only movie in the history of movies that should have two rotten tomatoes scores they should have one score for the first hour and 53 minutes of the film and another score for the last 13 and a half minutes because they are two totally different movies in my opinion and should have vastly different scores that is very fair. We're going to talk about <laughs> what maybe what scene we're talking where Nikki's referencing when she says that tomato meter might kick mm. up a little bit towards the end of the film. Um, I think that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong about the 60 percent. I don't think they're dead wrong. I think that it, it's really tough because as we talk about this, the behind the scenes, the movie we got, if I'm just judging it as a film, I think it's fresh and I think it deserves to be above that 60% into the 70s or 80s. But when you look at some of the facts that may have been skewed, that might have been sugarcoated, that might have just been flat out wrong, it's hard to say. So maybe the bigger fan of Queen you are, maybe you just can't celebrate this, or maybe you just love seeing your favorite band on the big screen. So let's get into all of this. But first, we always go to our expert review curation manager, Tim Ryan, who takes all of those critic reviews at the time of the film's release and condenses it into a segment we like to call Two Minutes with Tim. Let's hit it. 
As an artist and as a person, Freddie Mercury defied convention and easy categorization. And movie biopics are notorious for following a strict formula, even for the most fascinating of subjects. That was an issue critics had with Bohemian Rhapsody. While Rami Malek won praise for his performance, there was a large contingent that felt the movie as a whole was a little by the book, though virtually everyone agreed the music was pretty rockin'. Bohemian Rhapsody is fresh at 60% on the tomato meter with 415 reviews, but it does have an 85% audience score. This was definitely a case of the audience embracing the movie, whatever its faults. So what did the critics have to say? In a fresh review, Chris Knight of Canada's National Post wrote, The biopic treatment is not the equal of its subject, but it is still a well-made and loving tribute that will send you scurrying to dig out your old Queen LPs to remember what all the fuss was about. However, in a rotten review, David Lambeau of the Bay Area Reporter wrote, As a biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody falls short, failing to adequately examine Mercury's life and the people in it. Malik, who puts so much effort into bringing Mercury to life and who gives such a brilliant performance, deserves better, as does the audience. The Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus reads, Bohemian Rhapsody hits a handful of high notes, but as an in-depth look at a beloved band, it offers more of a medley than a true greatest hits collection. So that's Bohemian Rhapsody. Let's kick it back to Mark. He's having such a good time. He's having a ball. Don't stop him now. Back to you. Tim, I thought I told you, I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. You know, before we kick it straight to movie talk, we should probably bring in Producee Lucy, our own lead singer of the show. Lucy, you have an incredible vocal range, very much like Freddie Mercury himself. What did you think of Bohemian Rhapsody? So last night was the first time I saw the film to celebrate before I saw the film. I actually went to karaoke to get into the spirit of (laughs) Freddie. I didn't sing any Queen, but I should have. So I went in. So Queen, huge part of my childhood. My parents gave this movie to me, gave this movie, gave this band to me, um, introduced me to it. And I fell in love when I was like, I don't know, six or seven this music was what we listened to on road trips. My dad instilled the like head banging, like from Wayne. Is that Wayne's World? Yes, <laughs> Seeing, it is. You know, mm-hmm. Bohemian Rhapsody headbang. Love this band. Uh, this mi- this movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, made me actually love <laughs> Queen's music a little less. <laughs> wow! I, really? I they just skipped over. I mean, I just didn't. To Nikki's point, the first hour and fifty minutes. It just felt like they were just shooting across all these things. I don't know much about the band's backstory, and I still don't know. I just I feel like they really glossed over things, and I was I was amazed by the fact that the filmmakers somehow managed to stretch out this long movie and yet tell me nothing. Well, p- you know? possibly the key word there being filmmakers and not just <laughs> filmmakers. Right. So yeah, that's a perfect right. segue into our movie talk segment. Brian, do we have music for that? I knew the answer already. So we're, we're going to talk about the film here with Sharonda and Nikki and myself. And I just want to stress that there was a lot of behind the scenes drama. There was a switching of director pretty much halfway through the movie. There was a lot of editing difficulty in that switcheroo. So it, but if we take all of that and put it on the back burner for now and we just look at the movie itself, Nikki, the first time you saw this movie did you have that thought that you do now that like ah, the first almost two hours at eh, the last part? Great. 
Or did you walk out of the theater and then you just kind of revisionist history like now that I have some time to chew on this, I feel differently? Well, let me first say that I didn't think the first hour and 50 minutes were eh. I just felt like they were two totally different movies okay. because one took a lot of liberties with the truth and with factual, you know, there's been plenty of articles and Brian May has talked about the factual inaccuracies of the movie that he approved of because he's like, this is how we wanted to tell the story, which I totally understand. But then you go from that to this film, to this 13 minute live aid performance that is a shot for shot, nuance to nuance, blink to blink side-by-side -side comparison to the actual performance. So you went from taking so many liberties to then going so factually accurate that it, and it was shot in a different way. It had a different feel. It had a different style that it felt like two different movies. I was uh, about parts of it, but to answer your question, the first time I saw, I covered the junket for this. And just to sort of give some people an idea of how I experienced this movie for the first time, this was one of those films. And this happens sometimes with Marvel movies when you cover the junket where they don't show you the whole movie before you do your interviews. So what happened mm. was we all, all the press went down to Fox, to 20th Century Fox lot. In the morning, they showed us 45 minutes of the film, but they didn't show us like the first 45 minutes where then they leave you hanging and you're like, what happens next? They showed us sort of a synopsis of the whole film jammed into 45 minutes. So I didn't get to experience the whole movie as a first time viewer, if that makes sense. So I saw snippets of it then, they had us all drive out to this airport hangar where we boarded like a 747 with Rami Malek, with the entire cast, and jumped on a flight with them to Vegas. So we were treated like rock stars. What? We had the junket that afternoon, but they also had all these activities for us. Like we got a guitar lesson where we got to learn how to like play a Queen song. They gave us like, like jackets, like jean jackets that we got to like bedazzle ourselves. They treated us so well. And as you all, I'm sure know, if you've talked to Rami Malek or you haven't, he's so lovable. And he's just, you know, he's so personable. And we were some of the first people to see the footage. So the first time I saw the film, I saw this truncated version of it. <laughs> and based on that, I was like, first of all, and the other thing is, I saw footage of Rami Malek the year before at CinemaCon and called that he was going to win Best Actor. A year before, patting myself on the back for that one. But I said to myself, after seeing the footage, this is not a Best Picture nominee. This is a popcorn movie. This is a fun movie. And what I appreciate about it, I've now seen it, I think, four or five times. And the first time I saw that smaller version of it, I was like, this is fun. It's not what I expected. I expected it to be this gritty sort of Oscar bait type movie. That's not what it was. Then I saw the whole movie. But it's funny because I hadn't watched the movie since probably 2019. And I watched it two nights ago. And I swear I checked my, I paused the movie a couple times to go, did I skip over a couple scenes? I, am, I, am I missing? Like, I don't remember them telling the story like this way where it's jumping from thing to thing to thing. And it felt like an overview. It felt to me like I was missing something. Like, that's where they jumped in the story. It was a different movie than I remembered. And I will end on saying this. While I understand that this was not the movie a lot of Queen fans were hoping for in terms of grittiness and really going there and being R-rated, the fact that my 11-year-old nephew, who previously... So prior to Bohemian Rhapsody, only cared about Marvel, was obsessed with Queen and knows every Queen album now, told me that, that sometimes the actual, like that to me is more important 
than perhaps doing this little smaller indie gritty movie that maybe would have had more Academy Award, you know, I mean, it did win four awards. That to me is as important as, I think they got it right. And I think Roger Taylor or Roger, yeah, Roger Taylor has said, you know, this is a movie that Freddie would have wanted this movie to entertain. And it did that. It did entertain. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a fair synopsis, I guess, Sharonda, to say that this maybe is the more kid-friendly Queen movie, where, where this is a film made to please all fans of Queen and introduce new generations like Nikki's nephew to Queen. And so like when I saw this movie, I walked out of the theater, Sharonda, and I said two things right away. I need to go YouTube Live Aid because I want to watch <laughs> the, the original one. I was so pumped up from the end of the movie where we see Live Aid. But also that Rami Malek is at least a shoe in to get nominated. And I might have even thought that from watching the trailer. What were your thoughts when you left that theater the first time you saw Bohemian Rhapsody, Sharonda? It's a lot of the same thoughts that, you know, both of you have said. I mean, for me, I never have that much faith in biopics because Hollywood or even those that are involved whose story this revolves around, they're never going to let you fully tell the truth. They're not going to let you tell those dirty little secrets that everyone's talked about. You're not going to be able to see that type of those type of things on screen. But for a good biopic to me, it's something that reminds you of why you love Queen, why you enjoy their music. And it's something that after you walk out of that theater, you want to know even more. And for me, I wasn't the hugest like Queen fan. Don't don't kill me. But I knew the highlights. Like I knew the songs. When I was watching, I was like, oh my goodness, that was them who did this song. But after I walked out, I went and watched the Live Aid um, footage. And then for the next week, I watched every single Freddie Mercury documentary, Queen documentary, listened to all of the songs. Like that is what a good biopic does. It's not meant to be like a word for word, like this is what happened in that person's life, but it's something to give you the highlights, to get you excited, to help you understand this is why people love Queen, this is why people love Freddie Mercury, and this is why we continue, we need to continue to really just spread the word of who these icons are. And I feel like for the movie, it did that, especially given if you read into the backstory of everything that happened, Honestly, it's a it's a shock that this movie was even made, that it was even brought to screen for us to actually be able to watch. So I think that's a triumph in itself. So that's why I have a question. I want to know if there's anybody out there who has ever watched this movie, no matter how many times you've watched it and not gone back to the Live Aid on YouTube afterwards. (laughs) If there's anybody that has been able to do that, I want to I want to hear from you and how you were able to do that, because I even the other night went down a rabbit hole and started watching all this stuff all over again. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
And, 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 and we're saying, I mean, it builds up fandoms, even if, if you've never heard of Queen before or if, if they just weren't in your real lexicon, they weren't one of your favorite bands. I think it does up their status in, in everybody's you know catalog. But uh, Sharana makes a great point where I think that especially where we are now in society, look, I, I do a joke now in my act about documentaries where it's like, can we maybe just have a one part documentary again? Because documentaries have now become 10 parts. And so I think that even our minds separating a film from a documentary, if it's a biopic, we're like, well, where's the next chapter? Where's the next this? Why didn't they get as deep as they could? And it's because it's just a movie. It's, it's only two hours. And so we do have to do a sugary glossing of some of these things. And the fact that the band was so intricately involved in making this movie sort of reminded me of Straight Outta Compton because you had, particularly with that film, you had Dr. Dre and Ice Cube who were key behind the scenes members of making that movie. That's a lot higher on the tomato meter. Some facts probably massaged or skewed in both of these film, you know, examples. But the thing that Brian, and I saw this from Brian May, the guitarist of Queen, was quoted as saying, like, they wanted to show how important Freddie was, not just to the band, but to the culture. And so when we talk about this movie, Rami Malek's performance, I not only think it was worthy of winning the Oscar that year, it's just to see him completely become Freddie Mercury, it, it was just, it, it was a revelation to behold. And, and I think that sometimes a performance like that can elevate the overall feeling we have about a movie. I mean, we can argue about whether or not he should have won the Oscar because that was a big year. I'm sorry. We had Bradley Cooper for A Star is Born. That had my heart that year. I was a little heartbroken <laughs> he didn't win. But Rami's performance, if you do go on YouTube after and you start watching Freddie Mercury interviews, because I actually went and watched, I don't know if you've seen it, the Live Aid interview they did before they went on stage. And he was very yeah. chill. Like he wasn't, there were there were moments, and I know that Freddie, when he talked, had that mouth, you know, he would do that thing with his mouth that Rami did throughout the movie that I think Rami's still doing to a certain degree, <laughs> even years <laughs> later. But Rami's performance wasn't always, I mean, in the Alive Aid, it was exact. And there were moments in the film where he was very much like Freddie Mercury, but there were a lot of moments that I feel like he amped it. He was almost, and I don't want to use the car word cartoonish, but slightly, like he slightly overplayed. Like Freddie sometimes just sat back in interviews and was just like, cool. Like he was a cool guy and he was very articulate. But I feel like the fact that Rami, and I say cartoonish in a, as a compliment because he went so big and bold in his choices, it made its mark, right? Like it is so, it's, it's so indelible with that film. Like that he made those choices. And I know Sasha Baron Cohen was talked about maybe he was going to play, you know, the the Freddie Mercury character in its earlier iterations. And when you look at Sasha Baron Cohen, you go, oh my gosh, he looks exactly like Freddie Mercury. But I don't think he, the energy that he, that Rami brought, that incredible energy that you saw in Freddie's performances was spot on. Yeah, so Sharonda, if, if I'm sort of going to give Nikki the the uh, the live aid scene as far as like if we're talking about our favorite scenes in the movie, uh, what do you kind of look at besides the live aid closing of the film as like that's that's why I that's why I really like this movie. What was the scene that was the most memorable for you besides live aid? I think for me, and going piggybacking off of Rami's performance. A good performance to me is not just how you look and not how you talk, but it's really like the the air that you have. And there is like a confidence that Rami really exuded 
that even when he wasn't talking, like you felt like, felt like it was Freddie. Like you felt like it was this person that was really ahead of the times, ahead of, you know, their era. And it was a few scenes. It's really when he interacts with Lucy. Um, if you look at in the fitting room where he, you know, he gravitates towards clothes, but it's on the, the women's rack, but he didn't realize it. And even how you just see how he looks at himself in the mirror, like this is totally normal and I feel confident and I don't care like what anyone else has to uh, say. And even when he first meets the band members, you know, it's those little like looks that he has, how he holds his head up high when someone says when they make fun of his teeth and he holds his head up high is those like quiet moments, those little mannerisms that Rami does. Like those are the moments that actually stick with me, even outside of the live aid performance. Also, um, write songs might be of interest to you. It's just a bit of fun, really. You're five minutes too late. Our lead singer just quit. Well, then you'll need someone new. Any ideas? What about me? Uh, not with those teeth, mate. I know what I'm doing. I got a feeling I should be doing all right. And it's that defiance too that that, that Freddie had a streak of. And so I, I I'm always accused of this, and it's true. When we talk about comic book films, my favorite ones are the origin story of the superhero. Once we get into all the sequels and now multiverses, it's like, all right, yeah, cool. I like seeing how the hero became a superhero. I like seeing how an ordinary person became a saver of the universe. So with Bohemian Rhapsody. I love their first performance together because they're playing one of my favorite Queen songs, which is Keep Yourself Alive. And they're going through it. And Freddie's kind of like changing the words on them. And they're like, what the hell is this guy? What have we just gotten ourselves into? But it's like a cat falling down the stairs. They land on their feet. And that's what happened. And so that's what I love about this movie is that it gives me that feeling. But the criticism that I would have is that like, I don't know if that's exactly how it went. I don't know if later on in the film we get a studio creation of Another One Bites the Dust where the band is just feels like they're on their last legs and they're in an argument. Then all of a sudden, I think it's John Deacon just starts doing the the bass and it's like, wait a minute, what's that? That's a hit song. And it's like, is that really? It really came together that easy? But it, it makes you feel like you love Queen even more. And so that's the achievement of the film. Is, is there a scene for you, Nikki, where you're like, wait a minute, this is this is what I'm talking about. This is why this feels like a totally different movie than the thing I love at the end. You mean in the in the terms of like not not being as good as it could have been? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it. I would say I know a lot of people sort of made fun of that one scene that because the editor won for best editing at the Oscars and there was the one scene <laughs> where they're meeting the was it where they're meeting the manager? Is it the manager yeah. that they're meeting? Yeah. And there was all those quick cuts. And he's even said, if I could recut that scene, I would recut that scene. Um, but it's not so much one scene to me. It's little moments. Like, for example, and I'm going to go back to the Live Aid, but you know, in the Live Aid performance, if you do, there's a YouTube video where there's a shot by shot, side by side. 
And they cut to the band a lot, which I, in the actual film, where they don't do it in the live aid. They usually show Freddie close up and then show the band more in a wide shot. And I understand for dramatic purposes why they did it. But there's something in acting called indicating when you indicate your feelings to something rather than just letting, trusting that the audience, if you don't put it on your face, the audience will see it. And I think this is a choice by Queen, but they showed the band going, hey, like smiling, like, hey, they really like us, like kind of like, and if you actually watch the performance, they're not going doing that. They're cool. You know, they're performing. They're not like looking at each other. They're going, hey, can you believe 100,000 people like us? Like that to me are the things like the cheesiness that you didn't need to do. But when you hear Queen talk about it later, they do talk about the fact that they they felt that energy swell because this is considered to be the best, you know, the greatest live performance of all time. They weren't expecting the audience reaction that they got, even though they were huge stars. But I don't think they needed to indicate that as much as they did. So little things like that sort of got under my skin where they didn't need to show us so much, like trust your audience a little bit more. There was, Sharonda, there was a lot of, um, you know, people griping, which I understand about the film not getting as deep as it, as it should have in, in a lot of people's eyes into Freddie Mercury's sexuality and, and his expression. Um, do you feel like the movie shortchanged it? Because I remember like the movie will drop will drop hints from time to time and it certainly suggests a lot of it and, and who he is as a person. But is that one of those storylines that you think maybe we should have gone more than skin deep with? I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree, yes. But I never for once thought that they were going to delve deep into that because it's Hollywood and we already know how the pandering goes to the community. And it's something that should have happened, yes. But where were you going to fit that in? I felt like they could have delved even deeper into the other band members. But once again, like, how do you how do you take this entire career of Queen and then take the entire just personal lives of all of these members and fit it into a two hour movie. Like it, it's just not possible. It's not physically possible for them to encompass everything. I do think that that's a big part of who Freddie was. And I think that that would delve even more into just like that internal battle, you know, of what Freddie was going through, but also to how once again, Freddie was ahead of the times and really understanding where the world was at that point in time and Freddie deciding to actually be, you know, a rule breaker and to actually do, you know, what Freddie wants to do. But I mean, yes, but I never expected them to give it justice from the, in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and I'll give the other band members their flowers, the actors that play them, because you have Gwilym Lee as Brian May, who I thought was fantastic. I mean, you want to yeah. talk about doing a dead on Brian May impression. That guy knocked it out of the park. And there's a lot of interesting aspects of Brian May's life as well, because post Queen, he got his like doctorate. He's like one, one of the, the leading astrophysicists in the entire world. And oh, by the way, he's one of the greatest guitar players <laughs> to ever live. You got Ben Hardy, who played Roger Taylor. And then John Deacon um, was played by Joe Mazzello is the guy's name. And Lucy Boynton was great as, as Mary in the film, too. So. You know, th th there's a lot of moving parts here. And and as you sort of peel back the layers of what went on behind the scenes, you had Brian Singer, who was the original director, who shot the bulk of the movie. And then there's a whole lot. That's a whole other podcast with, with that firestorm that was happening. <laughs> and then he gets ousted because there's multiple reports of of friction, to say the least, on set as a, you know, the all, all the other things that Brian, um, the, you know, Brian Singer had his allegations that came out after the fact. And then Dexter Fletcher steps in. Dexter Fletcher, who has gone on to do Rocket Man, 
with Taron Egerton, and that movie's super fresh as well. So Dexter Flesher comes in, and he's like, okay, how can I piece this together? Nikki, to your point with the editing, I think that the editing in this film is both the high achievement of editing, and it's also, there's a couple scenes where it's like, we don't have the footage to make this movie the way that we're trying to, so we just have to kind of ping pong around the story and the conversations. But just the fact that we could cobble a film together I think is worthy of the nomination that the editors got for this film. But I mean, th there are some rough moments in the movie. I will get, I will say that. They want editing for the live aid performance. Like that's, that was the only scene right. that was watched. That's why they won. And I feel like everyone just needs to make peace with this. I love that you pointed that out too, because John Ottman is the guy who was, who was the lead editor and John Ottman also um, is a composer and also and is a great musician and he d did a lot of the, the music for Brian Singer's previous films. So Nikki, maybe he did have a little intuition, particularly about those live performance scenes. And the editor has talked about the fact that when you know directors switched hands, that there were certain things that Dexter Fletcher had to go in and shoot. I, like I think that that scene that he people made fun of him for was an added on scene because narratively they changed the story a little bit. So it was cobbled together very last minute. It wasn't part of the original narrative. So, and he also said something interesting that a lot of times when he is editing a film, he's getting footage like daily and he's putting the film together daily. He said he didn't get all of this footage until it was in the can. So he was starting it after the fact, after it was all sort of done. And that's a different beast than when you're getting something throughout and you're getting the director's notes throughout and you're sort of working in collaboration. I mean, the fact that, you know, there was reportedly so much friction between Brian Singer and Rami Malek, just going back to that, the fact that Rami pulled that performance out, like Rami's never spoken exactly what his gripe was with Brian. I know there was reports that he wasn't showing up. For a director to be fired with three weeks left to go on a film... <laughs> Something went down like so the fact that they put this film together the way they did and Rami that performance came out despite what was going on behind the scenes is a huge testament to his focus and his passion. But you felt it like what Sharonda was saying about Rami had a next level energy and a next level passion about this. And you felt that energy within the performance. He channeled it. Queen is one of those rare bands that has had a few different resurgences over the years. Obviously, they were arguably the biggest rock band in the world at their peak. And then the 80s create these sort of sports arena anthems. And We Will Rock You is at the top of every one of those lists. And then the 90s come around and we get a little movie called Wayne's World. And they're all headbanging to Bohemian Rhapsody. And one of the things that I love, but I would I, I really want Sharonda Nikki's opinion on this, because I've argued with some of my best friends about whether this was a distraction from the film was Ray Foster, who was an EMI executive when Queen was on their way to the top, played by Mike Myers in this movie. And Mike Myers is having a ball clearly playing sort of against type. Wayne Campbell would hate this guy because Ray's the one who says, we can't put Bohemian Rhapsody on the app. We can't release it as a single. No teenagers are ever going to headbang to Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a very obvious wink and nod to Wayne's world. I thought it was really fun to have Mike Myers playing that guy. And I thought he did a great job. Sharonda, am I crazy here? No, I totally loved it. It was a huge nod to everyone who watches Wayne's World. And also to 
for those kids who need their little history given to them, you know, they're going to hear people chuckle in a the theater and they're going to be like, I don't understand, like, what's so funny? And then <laughs> you go home, you show them the clip and now they can go down a whole other rabbit hole of things that we fell in love with growing up. So I thought it was yeah. great. I thought it was fun. And it was really great to see him to be a part of it and to know like how he put people on to like doing this in Bohemian Rhapsody. I thought I thought it was very clever. Yeah, and Nikki, you got to feel like a part of that because the band itself, the surviving members had so much to do with the making of this movie. You feel like that was them saying thank you to Mike Myers for putting Bohemian Rhapsody. It was back at number one on the charts in the early 90s because of Wayne's World. I think that scene in that office is one of the greatest scenes. Like as a critic, you can look at this movie and go whether the Rotten Tomatoes score works or not. But as an entertaining film that you go back and you go, that was iconic. Scaramouche, like the way he said, I'm doing a terrible Mike Myers impression, but the way he <laughs> says Scaramouche, Scaramouche. But it was also fascinating because how, I don't know how fa historically factual that actual scene was, but when you hear through the lens of this guy going, like nobody wants to listen to a rock opera and you sort of realize the odds that they were working against. And the fact that, and somebody said this in a comment about the film and about watching Freddie Mercury Certain artists perform to impress. Freddie Mercury performed to express, to express himself. And the fact that he had that much conviction in himself to walk out of that guy's office and go, you will be forever known as the guy that, you know, turned down Queen. Brilliant. Like Mike drop. I loved that scene. I thought Mike Myers was amazing. All kinds of amazing. And it's inspiring. I think whether you care about Queen or regardless of where you are in your life, you see somebody who believes in themselves and their creations that much. I think it does put a little juice and a little bit of pep in your step. Fun fact is that the studio, see, it's always studios. We always blame, we, we never thank studios for making great movies. We always just blame them for meddling. Like in <laughs> right. Wayne's world, the studio kept, kept pushing for them to have a Guns N' Roses song. I, th I think they just wanted Welcome to the Jungle in there in that opening scene in Wayne's World. And Mike Myers, just much like Freddie Mercury fighting for representation with AMI, Mike Myers is like, no, it's got to be Bohemian Rhapsody. I promise it's going to work. And I'd say it worked out okay for the movie, for the band, for everyone in between. My biggest gripe with this film and the way that it tells the story is that I'm fine with sugarcoating. I'm fine with hinting at things where maybe a documentary would show us more layers, but it it's a real bummer to have two facts so severely distorted that it does take the movie down a peg for me. I, I can still give it a fresh rating like Sharonda, but it, it like Freddie Mercury going out uh, wanting to make a solo album when Roger Taylor had already done a couple. I don't know how the band felt about all that stuff. But there's no clear historical record that anyone, including Freddie Mercury himself, was aware that he had contracted the HIV virus before 1987. And in the film, it's sort of made to look like, hey, we got this one last hurrah at Live Aid knowing what we know. And it just felt like that was a bridge too far for me, knowing that, I'll start with you, Sharonda, does that take the movie down a peg for you that it takes some of the facts and doesn't just distort them? It really felt like it changed some band history. I know I sound like a broken record, but this is just what they do in these movies. I mean, <laughs> I think for diehard like Queen fans or just even people who just want to make sure that things are historically accurate, like I definitely see how people could be upset by it. But for a biopic, they're going for the heartstrings. What is going to tell a deeper, more impactful story to make people, you know, really understand more about this figure? And I 
that's 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 what these studios do. They meddle, they mess with stuff, they try to pull at your heartstrings, and sometimes it doesn't go over well with everyone. And Nikki, it is tugging at the heartstrings even more with that live aid scene as we set up for it because we feel it, I almost felt like my my heartstrings were were being a little manipulated there. Well, you know, and this is what's interesting is is they have the the band queen who collaborated have said they wanted to end the film on on the live aid performance. They didn't want right. to go any further in the story. Right. So what could they have done if they he hadn't announced to his bandmates in the film his HIV diagnosis and then they end up, you know, with his high note, they could have maybe put it in print afterwards, you know, two years after this live aid performance. But here's the thing. I don't think it was necessary to sort of build things into the story for dramatic effects. The band had enough drama. Like, I don't think you needed that. <laughs> I don't think you needed... The other thing that wasn't historically accurate was that they hadn't played together in years. And what I didn't like about the film was when the two days before the performance, Freddie's like, ar, 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 he can't sing. They haven't played together in years. That wasn't true. They had been playing together consistently. I think they had released an album. Don't get, don't fact check me on this if I'm wrong, but I think they released an album the year before. They were consistently performing together. So this idea that they hadn't played together in years and wasn't going to work. And then all of a sudden they walk on stage and it's magic. Like I think um, May has talked about the fact that Freddie was tight. Like he was not you know, fighting against the odds to make sure his voice was okay for this performance. He was okay throughout. So, but I don't think you needed any of these things for dramatic effect. I don't think you needed him to announce to the band ahead of time. I don't think you needed a lot of the stuff that they added in to create this sort of dramatic arc in the film. I think they could have worked off of what was real and found enough dramatic beats. It's the thing about us fans is, is we want our cake and we want to eat it too. Where <laughs> we want you to get deeper with all these historical facts, but we also want them to be presented accurately. And so sometimes, especially, again, given what we just covered with the behind the scenes making of this movie, you got to think everyone involved in the film is like, look, we did our best. Do you like Queen or not? Go enjoy the movie. And I'll also give a nod to this scene that I don't think gets talked about enough because it's such a quick thing. You could blink and miss it or go to the bathroom and you'd have no idea what happened. But it's Freddie walking out of a meeting with his doctor um you know is sort of getting an update on on his vitals and and as he's walking out there's another young man who is waiting to go in and and it's, it's clear by the indications of the movie and the film is that you have this guy who's also hiv positive and that was becoming the aids epidemic at the time in the in the mid to late 80s and the fan kind of looks at and he doesn't know it's freddie mercury out of the bat but he, he's like that that kind of looks like Freddie Mercury. Freddie's walking out and he's almost about to the doors to clear it, but he stops and he just gives him a little Freddie Mercury head nod. And it's just like, it, you just get chills thinking about how much they meant to fans and how much Freddie Mercury meant to, to the gay community because he was this person who was so out there and was, and was so at the top of his game for so long. I would put you know him in the same category as, as Magic Johnson. It's like when you have celebrities like that who battle something like this. So uh, what ended up being a public battle for Freddie, although it was private for most of it, I think that that does place a priority on the rest of the world to say, we need to do something about this. And I think a lot of dollars were contributed to AIDS research because of Freddie Mercury. And then obviously, with Magic Johnson too. So as we kind of put a button on this conversation, we've gone to a lot of different paths and that's why I, I love having Sharonda and Nikki on the show. Let's talk about the best musical biopics of all time. Uh, Sharonda, we, we've been kind of kicking around how sometimes it doesn't matter how accurate of a musical biopic it is, there's going to be some things that weren't necessarily true to history, but we need it for the film. So what would you say is your favorite musical biopic of all time? And then where does Bohemian Rhapsody rank in there? Okay, I'm going off a of childhood, okay? So bear with me. 
And I have to break this up into TV and movie. So <laughs> my TV, the Jackson 5 story, I watched yes. that movie every single time it came on VH1. I will stop what I'm doing. I will watch that movie. I can quote it. Still can't moonwalk, but I know how to visually see it in my head. I can't do it physically. It's okay. But also, too, since we're talking about the disrespect that I want to bring this back to, what's love got to do with it? And the fact that Angela Bassett did not win for that movie, it still hurts. Yep. It still hurts me. But I really, I feel like that is actually one of the biopics that actually got into the nitty gritty that really like delved deeper than I, what I think that most people would have thought that they would have covered. I think if anyone wants to see like, how do you actually like tell a story and still keep people invested while still being honest to the story, I feel like what's love got to do with it. That's, that's my movie right there. And you picked a winner because I wholeheartedly agree. There is no other performance better than Angela Bassett that year. And it's 96% on the tomato meter. So, Nikki, th that's a high bar to pass is 96% for a musical biopic. What, what would be the one you point to and you say that? That's how you make a, a biopic in the world of music. Well, first, I want to say that I can moonwalk. I was a Michael Jackson Ooh. fan as well. Well, yeah, because I have I mean, a glitter you see, glove. You see a rattlesnake outside, you're going you're gonna to shimmy away from that thing however you can. That's exactly how, that's how I learned to moonwalk. Now, I had Michael Jackson wallpaper. Uh, but my favorite was actually Walk the Line. I loved Joaquin Phoenix's performance. It touched me. It moved me. The fact that June Carter was so, in, you know, involved. And, and, you know, the fact you look back and you know, Reese Witherspoon won an Oscar for that. And Joaquin Phoenix didn't win for that. Like, I don't remember who won that year, but it must have been stiff competition because that to me, that one just... There's only one Joaquin. He's so good. He's so good. It was so deep. It was one of those. It was kind of the equivalent of this. Like, I think Rami Malek was born to play Freddie Mercury, and I think he was born to, to do that role. Yeah. Uh, Walk the Line, another uh, super fresh film in the tomato meter. Uh, Selena, which we've covered on this show um, previously, great musical biopic. It just and, and you talk about a film that's introducing an artist to new generations, to a, a broader spectrum in the world. Selena has achieved that in the years since it's been released. And Ray is another one that I just felt like Jamie Foxx, which is so transcendental as Ray Charles, that if I can't say Eddie and the Cruisers is a biopic story because it's not actually based on anyone, then I'm going to have to give it to either Ray or, you know, the other one is Love and Mercy, though. If you all have not seen Love and Mercy, it's 89% on the tomato meter, and it's about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And you have a younger Brian Wilson played by Paul Dano, an older Brian Wilson played by John Cusack. And it's just, it's a very well-told story with, again, probably some shoulder relaxing of the facts. But <laughs> uh, come on. At the end of the day, we are there because we're fans of the band. And the achievement that I can right. give Bohemian Rhapsody above everything else is that it did remind me how big of a Queen fan I truly am. Favorite Queen song? Sharonda, are you going with the classic We Will Rock You and uh, We Are the Champions? Do you have a Queen tune that is going to pop up on the old phone more often than not? My personal favorite that I like to perform in the mirror is Another One Bites the Dust. <laughs> it is just, that just gives me the energy, the confidence that I need. I, I love that song. That's one of my favorites. All right, so now we have two TikTok vids that are going to be incoming from Sharonda. We, we get her performing Another One Bites the Dust, and you, she's in the gym all the time now, kids. She's going to be moonwalking within a couple weeks. I'm going to claim that. We'll have a uh, moonwalk off. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a side-by-side.
<laughs> we like the I, line. I love this idea for all of us. Producer Lucy and engineer Brian's got to get in there too. And then we'll, we'll just surprise Jacqueline next time she uh, she rejoins the show. Uh, Miss Novak, your favorite Queen song, if you had to narrow it down to one. Can I say Under Pressure with David Bowie and Freddie Mercury? Yes. Yeah, give me that. Lucy's giving me the mic drop on that one. That song, <laughs> no matter when it comes on, where it comes on, it ends up being on a loop. <laughs> I just keep playing it over and over. It was so great when the Oscars opened with Queen because I love a good opening monologue at the Oscars. I love a nice song and dance number, but just to hear the drumbeat of boom, boom, and everybody's just rocking in there. That's how you open a show like the Oscars. But my favorite Queen song is going to be revealed in just a minute. First, we bring Brack producing Lucy, who loves Queen. Your favorite Queen tune. And Lucy, you can actually sing a couple of these. Ooh. Actually, <laughs> I was in a band in college called The Cat's Meow. And we got disqualified because they asked me to get off the stage because we went over time. And I was like, no, F you guys. And I stayed up there <laughs> to finish Somebody to Love. That's the song that disqualified us. I love singing that song. Bohemian Rhapsody is a very nostalgic one for me just because of our family road trips. But somebody to love and under pressure, I have to say, in terms of like singing and just like when I'm in the shower, I pretend I'm all the people singing it and I'm just, I go hard. It's like, I'm rocking out, man. Those those two songs. Ooh. Yeah. You, you could put a couple uh, back in back in my day in high school, you could put together a couple <laughs> great mixed CDs of all time awesome Queen songs. My favorite one, just because I like my rock and roll down, dirty, sexy, and just a little bit rule bending is tie your mother down. And it's just about, hey, <laughs> just just tell your mom and dad something else because you're sneaking out and you're going out with me tonight. I love that tune. And I also love that you can go on YouTube and when you're done watching Live Aid, nobody can ever match Freddie Mercury. For my money, he's actually the greatest lead singer that ever lived. I, I think he's the best rock lead singer of all time. But Queen continued to thrive after Freddie passed. They, they took a few years off, but then they really reformed well in the in the 2000s touring with Paul Rogers, who's the lead singer from Bad Company. That's some great stuff to YouTube. And now, obviously, them with Adam Lambert. Um, it's just it's a really great story that the band has been able to cobble together since the passing of Freddie Mercury. And so we didn't cover that in the movie. But as Brian, uh, Brian May joked in one of the interviews, he said, well, maybe we'll cover that stuff in the sequel. So that is going to do it for our movie talk here about Bohemian Rhapsody, quite the divisive movie, quite the interesting conversation here. And now we're going to throw it over to Mailbag Brian. Hit the music. Our mailbag this week is from esteemed Ketchup Crew member, Alicia Dixon. You can be like Alicia anytime you want to email us. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. Let us know your thoughts about movies that we've already covered or what movie should we be talking about? And that's what Alicia is here to steer us towards. She says, Dear Mark and Nikki and Sharonda, inspired by the Cats episode, I cannot believe I haven't thought to ask you about this absolutely bonkers movie. It's so bad that I've made people sit down and watch it just to have lived that experience at least four different times. I find it hard to believe that this movie got made at all, much less with people like Mila Kunis, Sean Bean, and Eddie Redmayne. Jupiter Ascending is an absolute acid trip of a movie. It's sitting at 28% rotten, 38% audience score, and that is generous. However, given the joy I draw from forcing people to watch this absolute travesty of a film, I think it could be a cult movie material one day, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Thanks. 
Alicia. Thank you for your email, Alicia. That's our first Jupiter Ascending email that we've done on the show here. <laughs> Sharonda, Nikki, did Rotten Tomatoes get Jupiter Ascending wrong or is that 28% right on the money? I haven't seen it. This movie is so good. Why does everyone hate this movie? Oh my gosh. All right. I don't know what Nikki and Sharonda were planning on doing this weekend, but clear your schedules. We're going to go to Alicia's place and she's going to get to enjoy Jupiter ascending the way that she likes it, which is just making everybody else watch the movie. <laughs> she can make she me watch it. Is a travesty. Nikki, check that one out and get back to us. And Sharonda, <laughs> uh, keep your phone handy because when we do Jupiter ascending, we might need you to come on back. But in the meantime, it's just been so great catching up with, with two of my buds. And we, you know, the three of us, we, we've done a lot of stuff during the pandemic together via Zoom and all that stuff. And then Sharonda, getting to hang out with you on stage at South by Southwest, it feels like a million years ago. It's only a couple of years ago. And we had such a great time doing it. And and Nikki, it's always a pleasure to see you. So uh, Sharonda, start with you. Where can all the kids out there find what you're working on with, uh, with Pay Your Weight? Anything else you want to tout as we say goodnight here? You can find some fun reviews, lives, recaps, I have it all at payerweight.com or on my YouTube channel and other social media platforms at payerweight. That is Sharonda Williams and Nikki Novak. What sort of new stuff do you have in the hopper for us? I am to be found at all things Fandango and Rotten Tomatoes. You can't get rid of me, you guys. <laughs> I'm going to be doing a lot of fun junkets actually coming up. We're doing a Finally, some in-person stuff I'm excited about for some big movies that are coming out in May and June and July. I don't even think I'm allowed to talk about them yet. But yeah, like you said, on morning shows quite a bit at Nikki Novak on my socials and at Sharonda's house this weekend practicing my moonwalk. <laughs> y'all, just given y'all's work work schedules, you have to get up insanely early in the morning. So it's just a, a privilege that mm -hmm. you managed to spare an hour to come hang out with me. Let's do some uh, some recommendations. What should all the kids out there be watching? What should poor Alicia put on when she wants to be entertained? That's not Jupiter ascending. Sharonda, start with you. What's a, what's a good wreck you got for all the kids out there? You know, right now, I am in my reality TV kick. I am looking for the trashiest, the messiest <laughs> shows to watch before I go to bed. And if you want to talk about some messy relationships, I definitely think that you need to be watching The Ultimatum on Netflix because it's going to make you want to fall in love and then quickly jump out of that relationship and find somebody else. Nikki, can you co-sign the ultimatum? Have you seen it yet? I have not seen it yet. I'm not a huge reality person, but I'm always down to try something else, uh, try something new, something that'll hook me. So I'm going to check that one out. Um, I would recommend a movie that's out this weekend, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent with Nicolas Cage, playing Nicolas Cage and a younger version of himself called Nikki opposite Pedro Pascal. They are the duo you never knew you needed on screen. And for anybody that thinks, oh, this is a movie I can wait for, and see at home because it's not Marvel. It's not a superhero movie. No, you're doing yourself a disservice. This is a movie you want to go see in the theater and laugh out loud 100,000 times with everybody else. It is phenomenal. And I think currently 100% on the tomato meter. Oh, I, I I saw the trailer and I was like, you got me, you hooked me. And then we also get Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz in it. Like, and they're it's both so great on, on that, that. What is it? Apple Plus show, the after party. After party, so, yep. Um, my recommendation is going to be Better Call Saul's new season uh, coming out. And I'm just I'm hooked on that. I had a dream I was in Better Call Saul last night, not like uh, like <laughs> acting in the show, like the show was real and I was part of the stuff going on. And that was a rough night sleep. <laughs> but this was a fun episode for everyone. So like I said, stand updates are at Mark Ellis dot live. Also, Vegas, probably this summer, if uh, if our engineer Brian can can book me a show there. 
So we got some good emails for this uh, hook episode that we have planned. Steven Spielberg, one of his very few rotten movies, but we need more of y'all submissions, a video submission telling us why you love, hate, are indifferent to Hook. Send it over to RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. And every week this podcast drops. However you enjoy us, whether you watch us, you listen to us, whatever that platform recommends, do all the sharing, the subscribing, the rating, reviewing. We really appreciate your support because that's why we get to keep showing up and having fun with movies like next week when we talk about 1995's Jumanji, the OG. It's rotten on the tomato meter. It's barely, it's almost fresh, but it's rotten. And then the audience score is almost rotten, but it's barely fresh. So Jumanji, going to have some strong feelings about that Robin Williams classic, depending on what age you were when you first saw it, way back in the mid-90s. So for Sharonda Williams, Nikki Novak, Producey Lucy, our engineer Brian Perez, and Jacqueline Coley, who is off on a beach somewhere, I am merely Mark Ellis saying thanks for tuning in to this Bohemian Rhapsody edition of Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, and we'll see you next week.